This morning's passage, we're going to be in a, we're going to be starting First Peter chapter one, uh, is, and it's this introduction is consists of basically two parts. The first part is his salutation, his greeting. In this part, he will focus on three dimensions of the great process of salvation: the determining knowledge of God the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, and the obedience-generating covenant of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The second part is essentially a eulogy to God the Father. In that section, Peter maintains an unwavering focus on the situation of his readers, their new birth, their distress, their trials, their testing, their love, their faith, their joy, and the grace that had come to them. In my message this morning, we're going to explore four main issues from our text and why it's important for you to understand and or be aware of them. Those four issues, again, are gonna be the praise and worship of God, Christian hope, suffering, and as our as my title says for today's message, uh, Joyful Expectation of Salvation. So before we begin, before we start reading with God, in God's word, let's, uh, let's open up the word of prayer and ask him to speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you again this morning in, in complete love and adoration and in, in a continual heart of worship. Lord, dedicate this time completely to you. You, sometimes we go through the week again just forgetting that we are alive right now because of you. That everything that we have is because of you. And that you can just easily, Lord, take it all away. Lord, I touched my heart, Lord, during that time of worship made me again understand and see that without you I'm nothing. I think a lot of us feel that way as well, Lord. The realization, the knowledge of that, again, knowing that you love us in spite of our imperfections, in spite of our sinfulness, that you were willing to bring Jesus Christ, your one and only Son, to die for us. Oh, wow, that's it's just heartbreaking, Lord, but it's it's awesome and wonderful and good that you've accepted us that you love us and we're going to have a home with you Lord so as we get into the, your word this morning and covering some of these some of those issues some of those topics Lord um, open our minds open our hearts may we receive your word with uh, gladness Lord remove all the distractions dedicate this time to you, Lord. We praise you. We honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, we're going to be, in, again, starting 1 Peter. Last week, I did an introduction uh, to 1 Peter, um, and so this week, we're going to be starting on in the actual text. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Peter 
an apostle of Jesus Christ to those chosen to those chosen living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Stop there and examine these first two verses, break it down. Um, in my introduction last week, I shared with you a good amount of information uh, regarding the first one. I think we covered it thoroughly. If you remember, I mentioned that in this letter, or, or others, other people would call it a book. It was written by Peter, or otherwise known as Cephas, who was one of Jesus' uh, first disciples, and he had written it around 65 AD, and more than likely he wrote it from Rome. He was writing to a combination of Jews and Gentiles suffering severe persecution. And as a result of that persecution, they are now living as exiles throughout the five provinces of modern-day Turkey. Now, again, instead of examining thoroughly again that first verse, um, what I want to do is start off this morning by focusing our attention, by beginning, to, by beginning this morning by focusing our attention to verse 2 uh, of Peter's introductory greeting, which you may notice actually begins, in, in, in the CSB Bibles, the Bibles that we use here, it actually begins at the end of verse 1. Um, there, we read that along with being called exiles, the recipients of this letter were also designated by a four-step process of their salvation, involving all three persons of the Trinity. First of all, he says, chosen, uh, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What this means is that in, in a past, in past eternity, wait, before time even began, God chose them, God chose you, the, the, the readers of this, of this letter, God chose them to belong to himself. He understands what no other person can comprehend. He knows we're going to make it. As bad as we might seem to ourselves or to others, as steep as the odds against us, may be he calls us already glorified boldly and we can enjoy him intimately we can ask him expectantly because we have been elected eternally any difficulty in reconciling god's election and our human responsibility lies in, in man's mind not in God's. The Bible speaks about both. The Bible teaches both doctrines, and therefore we should believe both. The way I see it, the truth lies in both extremes, not somewhere in between. The second step of salvation is through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Not only does God the Father foreknow whom the elect will be, but the Spirit is the source of their sanctification. The term sanctification often refers to the progressive growth of holiness 
in the lives of Christians. In this context, however, the focus is Peter then explained how believers come to be a part of God's elect people. When believers are converted, they, becomes, they become God's holy and set-apart people. In eternity, God foreknew and chose men. In time, the Holy Spirit operates to make the election, that election real in the lives of the individuals concerned. Now the third step in the soul's salvation is the sinner's response to the work of the Holy Spirit, which he describes as to be obedient. This means obeying the gospel by repenting of one's sins and receiving Christ as Savior. Ephesians 2.10 tells us, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Christians were chosen by God to have a covenant that's characterized by obedience. You see, what the Father plans and the Spirit empowers, Christ thus receives as exalted Savior and ruling Lord. Finally, there's a sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. Peter's readers, of course, would have realized that their obedience in this life will always be incomplete. They're not, we all know that we're not going to be completely obedient. There can be times where we just mess up. We sin. Even the most mature Christian would have been painfully aware of the remaining sin. And that obedience to Jesus Christ wouldn't be completely fulfilled in this life. So he adds that their lives were also leading are also leading towards sprinkling of his blood. This, of course, is figure, he's using figurative language. We're told that as soon as a person obeys the gospel, he receives which flow from the shedding of Christ's blood on Calvary. The Savior's blood was shed once and for all over 2,000 years ago. It will never be shed again. But we receive forgiveness, redemption, and the other innumerable blessings that flow from the crimson tide as soon as we believe in him. Peter's effortless way of combining the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in our salvation displays the New Testament approach to the Trinity. Now, again, the Trinity isn't specifically mentioned, that doctrine isn't specifically mentioned um, in the Bible, but it's woven, it's in there. It's woven into the fabric of the New Testament. You and I have been chosen by the Father, purchased by the Son, and set apart by the Spirit. It takes all three, it takes all three if there's to be tr a true experience of salvation. He then ends this initial greeting, this salutation, with the encouraging words, 
may grace and peace be multiplied to you. As a Christian, you've already experienced the grace of God when he saved you. And his peace, when he reconciled, when reconciliation came as a result. But day by day, you'll need grace or strength, or I mean, or and strength for the Christian life. And peace in the midst of a turbulent society. This is what the apostle wishes for them here the, in the fullest abundance, multiplied. And continuing on from verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though, you have, you're, though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In the Greek... Verses 3 to 12 is one massive run-on sentence. In one breath, Peter profound, profoundly expresses the grandeur of his subject, salvation. In order to unravel what he's saying, I've decided to divide the text into four main parts. I'll cover three of them here, and uh, we'll cover the last read the last few couple of verses in, um, uh, in this section. Now part one is in verse, verses three to five. Here Peter blesses the Father for the new birth he grants his people, which leads to their majestic hope of salvation. This long, again, run-on sentence is a statement of praise to God that is directed to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father is blessed because he has given us new birth because of his mercy. To those this morning feeling discouraged, displaced, depressed, or in danger, Peter addresses the issue right away, saying, we have a living hope based upon the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. Unlike living hope, human, unlike living hope, human hope tends to get weaker and dimmer and finally dies altogether the further one goes down the road of life. As we go down the road of life, we often check off things we thought we would one day do or be. Regarding spiritual life, however, the opposite is true. 
the further down the road we walk with Jesus doesn't lie on this earth. It lies in heaven. This new birth stimulates into a living hope that Peter defy, defines as an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. A living hope is one that has life in it and therefore can give life to us. And so because it has life, it grows, becomes greater and more beautiful as time goes on. But as I mentioned, time destroys most hopes. It fades, it fades and eventually dies. But for the believer, the passing of time only makes a Christian's hope that much more glorious. This inheritance is kept for God's people, guarded by God's power. Now, I'm not sure if you knew this, but as a born-again believer, you are kept by the power of God. You are kept by the power of God. It's not you that's holding on to Him. It's Him holding on to you. You may have meant, you, I may have mentioned this before, or you may have heard this, but a good example of this is, um, you know, I, I tell my daughter, I've always told my kids ever since they were small, we would walk into elementary school, you know, hold on to daddy's hand as we're crossing the street. And, and they would, they would hold my hand, especially the ones that had a hard time paying attention. <laughs> but if out of forgetfulness and fatigue, they loosened their grip, it wouldn't matter because although they thought they were holding my hand, I was holding theirs and I would never let it go. So too, we think that we're holding on to the Lord, but in reality, He's holding on to us. We're kept by His power. Now, if Peter's readers had any worry about having the strength to remain faithful during persecution or during suffering, he assures them that they are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last, in the last time. This here refers to a salvation in its future tense. It's often been pointed out that there are three tenses uh, of salvation. According to Ephesians 2.8, it's a Christian saved from the penalty of sin in the moment he first trusted uh, in Jesus Christ. According to Romans 5.10, it's someone saved daily from the power of sin as he allows the Savior to live his life through him. According to Hebrews 9.28, it's someone being saved from the presence of sin at the time of the rapture. At that time, our body will be changed and glorified and forever free of sin, sickness, and death. This future tense of salvation also includes the time when the saints will return to earth with Christ and will be clearly shown to be children of God. Now, there may again be some of you who are hanging on to your faith 
you're hanging on hanging on to it by a rope through your own efforts by your own spirituality you get disgusted with yourself when you loosen the grip and you fall off that rope you then worry to make it the thing is if you just let go of that rope and rest in what Jesus did for you on the cross you'd realize that it's not your puny efforts that'll see you through but again the power of God so what Peter is essentially telling believers who may be wondering if they'd be able to hang on during those trials, those persecutions, those hard times, is this. I want you to know something. You have an inheritance waiting for you that can't be taken from you. You are kept by the power of God and He is committed to seeing you through. All that remains for you to do is believe and trust. Now part two is in verses six and seven. Here Peter states that the expectation of final salvation leads them to rejoice about that day of Jesus Christ in spite of their suffering. These verses here, verses six and seven, depict the heart of Peter. He began theologically with praising God for his benefits of salvation, but then continues to comment on the joy that suffering believers have as they contemplate that final day. He says, you rejoice in this. That is, contemplating salvation and believing it'll happen generates great joy in the hearts of the believers. A joy so great that it can endure suffering. The problem facing these Christians is that they are suffering grief of various trials, even if, it's only, if it was only temporary. Peter is saying to you here, he's saying, I know what you're going through. I know that what you're going through is heavy, but it's only for a season. Rejoice greatly, because you know what? You're going to heaven. This, that's what Peter emphasizes over and over throughout this letter. Our sights on the big picture, heaven. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, But seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be provided for you. Now Peter also wants them to see the purpose of their suffering, so that the proving character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which through though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is that uh, whereas gold perishes when it is refined by fire, or the impurities of gold perishes when it is refined by fire, their faith will endure the fire of persecution 
and it will be proved genuine at the last day. Like James, or like, like how it says in James 1.3, Peter sees suffering in a situation for which the believers can learn and grow. When they go through hard times, or when we go through hard times and difficult time, or difficult days, people sometimes say, or you may think, or you maybe you've thought this before, I don't see anything good coming out of this trial. If you've ever said this, let me ask you, does the Bible say in Romans 8.28, we see all things work together for the good to those who love God? No, it doesn't say that. It says we know that all things work together for the good. You may not see things working together for the good this month or this year or even in your lifetime. But the truth is it never says you're to see it. It says you're to know it. That's what Peter is reminding the believers that he's writing to. When your faith is tested, it isn't because God doesn't know how much or what kind of faith you have. It's tested because you're, or all of us, many of us are often ignorant of how much or what kind of faith we have. So God's purpose in testing is to display the enduring quality of our faith. If gold is fit to be tested and purified by fire, then how much more our faith, which, what does it say? It's far more precious than gold. Our Heavenly Father, your Heavenly Father, has three important purposes for testing your faith. Firstly, He tests your faith to show that it's sincere or true faith. Secondly, He tests your faith to show the strength of your faith. And thirdly, He tests your faith to purify it, to burn away the impurities from the gold. Many of us know that gold is one of the most durable and expensive materials in this planet, in this world. Yet, it too, that physical gold, will one day perish. But guess what? Our faith will never perish. Our faith will not. Part three is in verses eight and nine. Here, Peter expresses the love and joy they have in Jesus Christ as they anticipate the final day of salvation. Since his readers will be found acceptable to God on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed, Peter turns to the present relationship of these Christians to Jesus. Their current response is that they love Christ in spite of not having seen him. They're in love with him even though Peter has seen him, Peter has been with Jesus, but these people have not. And even though they haven't, they love him just as much as Peter, who spent time with him, loves him. 
they're in love with Jesus. And, and again, I understand because, you know, you ask me, you know, do I love Jesus as much as I love my wife, as my kids? I would say, yeah, I do. I love them. I, I, love, I love my kids, but I love Jesus even more because I understand. I know what he all my heart. There's no doubt about it in my mind, in my, you know, logically, you know, and because of that fact, because he saved me and he rescued me from the mess that I was getting myself into. And, and I can, I, again, I was worshiping this morning. I was like, Lord, thank you that you've chosen me. I was, it was breaking my heart because, and, 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 and just enjoy because he was, he could have just let me go. If it were me in charge, I would have let myself go a long time ago. But he didn't. He loves me and, and knowing that, again, believing that with all my heart, it makes me just love him. Love him with everything that I've got. Because even if everything was gone, even if I lost everything, even if I was by myself, if I, was the, if I was the only person in this planet, I know that his love for me will endure and my love for him will always be the same. And it should be the same for everyone here. For you just to completely, again, fall in love with him. Peter sees this response to the Lord as so potent that he describes it as the inauguration of their final salvation. He says, you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter's main point in this verse is clear. Believers who suffer are not dashed to the ground by their troubles. They love Jesus Christ and rejoice in him, even though they have not seen him and do not see him now. Their lives are characterized by a hope that falls in the present with love and joy. The Christian philosophy in life is not pie in the sky by and by. It carries with it a present dynamic that can turn suffering into glory today. Peter gave three directions for enjoying the glory now, even in the midst of your trials. Love Christ. Our love for Christ is not based on physical sight because we have not seen Him. It's based on our spiritual relationship with Him and what the Word has taught us about Him. Secondly, uh, direction again for enjoying glory now trust in Christ the first one is love Christ this one here is trust in Christ in John 20 29 Jesus said blessed are those who have not seen yet believe faith means surrendering all to God all everything and obeying his word in spite of the circumstances and con and consequences Regardless of what's happening in your life, it's obeying. Regardless of what might happen, it's obeying. Love and faith go together. See, many of you know this. When you love someone, 
You trust Him. You trust her. And faith and love go together to strengthen hope. For where you find faith and love, you will find confidence in the future. So again, love of Christ, trust Christ. And thirdly, another direction for enjoying uh, glory now is to rejoice in Christ. You may not be able to rejoice over the circumstances, but you can rejoice in them by centering your heart and your mind on Jesus Christ. Let Him be the focus to be united to Him through faith is to have an uninterrupted and eternal contact with the fountain of all pure joy. So now let's get into the final, this final step here, this final section. Continuing on from verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired, in, they inquired into the time or what circumstance the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when He testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. In these final verses, in these final verses we're, we'll be covering today, we see the fourth part of Peter's opening theme of salvation. Here, Peter informs his readers that salvation was the subject of the ancient prophets of Israel. They searched and carefully investigated in all its details, though they did not live to see its fulfillment. Nevertheless, although they didn't understand who or when the predictions would be fulfilled, they did understand through the Holy Spirit that they were writing about the future Messiah, the future Messiah's suffering and the glories that would follow. As often as has often been pictured, they saw two mountain peaks. Calvary, where Jesus suffered, and the depiction of that is you can find that in Isaiah 53 and Mount Olivet, where He will return in glory. And in the Old Testament, the, the picture of that you can find in Zechariah 14.4. See, they saw those two mountains. That's what, that's what the prophets saw. You know, the sufferings of, of Christ and the return of Christ. But they didn't see the valley that lay between, the, that, lay between. that is the age that we currently in that we currently in today and what's that age it's the church age it's the age of grace so when you're going through hardships or you see the suffering that's going on around the world 
Again, do you ever find yourself thinking and saying, I hear of all the promises, but I don't see the glory. If so, you're failing to see the valley between the promises made and your future glory. That again, that may last a month, a decade, and even possibly a lifetime. But again, guess what? God's plan is being unfolded nonetheless. For glory always follows suffering. No matter how intense their search or profound their vision, Peter insists in verse 12 that these prophets only served a preliminary role in the plan of God. The Holy Spirit working with these prophets made it known to them that they were preparing the world and God's people for a later time. And guess what? Again, the late, that later time is now. You see, they weren't serving themselves. They were serving you. Therefore, since we know who which is Jesus, since us, us as in the church age know who the who and the when, which is Jesus' day when Jesus comes back, we should read the Old Testament prophets eagerly. We should look forward to reading these Old Testament prophets. Our heart should be stirred to praise every time we discover Old Testament prophecies describing the sufferings of our Savior on our behalf and the future glory of a kingdom which we are now members of. Peter's main point throughout is that believers in Jesus Christ are incredibly blessed to live in a time, in the time when the predictions of the prophets have come to pass. A similar lesson is communicated by none other than Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 13, verses 16 and 17. And there our Lord and Savior says, Blessed are your eyes because they do see, and your ears because they do hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see the things that you see, but didn't see them. To hear the things that you hear, but didn't hear them. Finally, Peter adds at the end of verse 12 that the message of the gospel is something that also the angels long to ca catch a glimpse of. In other words, like wedding atten uh, attendees attempting to steal a glance at the bride before her appearance, angels desire to look into these truths of salvation. John Calvin wrote, It is indeed the highest praise to the gospel that it contains treasures of wisdom as yet concealed and hidden from angels. Paul says that by the calling of the Gentiles, the wonderful wisdom of God was made known to the angels, for it was a spectacle to them when Christ gathered into one body the lost world, alienated for so many ages from the hope of life. Thus, 
daily. They see with admiration the magnificent works of God in the government of his church. How much greater will their admiration be at the witnessing of the last display of divine justice when the kingdom of Christ shall be completed? This is as yet hidden, the revelation of which they still expect and justly wish to see. So let me put it this way. And these angels, God's angels, have a holy curiosity to watch what God is doing in and through His church. God is educating them through the church. This was also Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display His wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was His eternal plan, which He carried out through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see, these angels are stooping down and learning about salvation by observing each and every one of us. When you become, when, when, you're, when you're saved, they're looking down and they're saying, I mean, you, Lord, you picked angel? That mess, that ball of mess that kept screwing up and, and, and almost destroyed his entire life? Oh, I got to see what I got to I got to learn what God is doing with this guy. I got to, you know, again, and this may apply to you too. I got to see what's going on with with that girl. You know, did, why did you save them? What's going on? You're never in my they probably again, I'm thinking this is me. They're probably thinking I never would have expected for you, Lord, for you God to pick that person. So now I got I want to see it through. I got to see another example. It's as if they're watching a real-life suspenseful, suspenseful movie or drama you know, or an action movie play out. Where the good guys or the good girls and these angels are looking intently to see if the objective will be completed. Will they get that girl? Will they get that guy? Will he kill the bad guy? Will there be a happy ending? You know, and, and many of us know, I mean, I, I've watched shows where, you know, it just leaves you, you know, at the end of one episode, it leaves you in suspense. Like you can't wait for the following week to see what's going to happen. And it's similar. This is, it's the same thing. This is how the angels are feeling. Okay, you know, I got to see what's going to happen. With this They're cheering you on. They're up there. They're on your side. The other ones, again, who are just, yeah, come on, just do it, just go, just, you know, they're cheering you. They're, they're, they're hoping that you're going to make it to the end. See, though the world may think of Christians as in- insignificant and worthy of pity or scorn, angels who ultimately see the reality of God's perspective They know God's point of view because they're there. They're worshiping the Lord. 
they've seen the glory of God. Find them, find us to be objects of intense interest. They see us and they're like, man, that guy, that girl, I don't know, I'm blown away at, at the thought of that. For they know that these struggling believers, they know that we, as struggling believers, are actually recipients of God's greatest blessing and honored participants in a great drama at the focal point of universal history. So to summarize what Peter wants us to understand, what Peter wants us to understand is that whatever glory we achieve is temporal, but God's glory is eternal because of his love for us. To share that glory with us. So if you were to look at this first section of chapter one as a whole, you'll see Peter sharing these four beautiful discoveries that he made about the glory of God. He discovered in verses two and five that you as a Christian are born for glory. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, believers have been begotten again into a living hope. And that hope includes the glory of God. In verse five, Peter discovered that you as a Christian, are kept, are kept for glory. What this means is, is that if you're a believer, you have a future home and inheritance guaranteed and reserved for you upon your arrival in heaven. In verses six and seven, he discovered that you are currently being prepared for glory. As a believer, um, as a believer never forgets that all God's plans and performs here is preparation for what he has in store for you in heaven. And finally, verse 8 and 12, Peter discovered that you can enjoy, we all can enjoy the glory of God now. In those verses, he urges you to exercise love, faith, and rejoicing so that you might experience some of the glory of heaven in the midst of your suffering now. Nevertheless, Peter's main theme in this opening passage is that as Christians, we ought to have a joyful expectation of salvation. You see, when you have that joyful expectation, it will sustain you to go through hardships, facing, tr facing trials and dealing with persecution when we love Him, trust Him, and rejoice in Him, we experience the glory here and now. So I want to close with one final question. Have you ever experienced that joyful expectation knowing without a doubt that you're saved? If that's what you desire, you want that you want to be saved. You want to have that hopeful expectation that one day you'll be with the Lord for all eternity. And wherever you're at, just close your eyes and just with all sincerity, just pray this from the bottom of your heart, from, with all sincerity. Heavenly Father,
I believe, I know that I'm a sinner. I admit, confess that I'm a sinner. I know that I've fallen short. I believe now that Jesus Christ, your died on the cross for my sins. I confess that He is Lord. And I place my faith, my heart, my trust in Him. I open the door to my heart for Him to come in and live. Lord, thank you for sending him. Thank you for saving me, Lord. I accept that forgiveness that you've offered. So now fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I may walk according to your ways the rest of my life, Lord. Surround me with, with good, faithful Christians to help me along my path, Lord. Help me to understand and see your word. Speak to me through it, Lord change my life right now. Thank you again for dying or for sending Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen.